Okay, jolly good. Hello, everybody. <clears throat> good to be here, isn't it? Good, lovely. Okay, um, we're continuing our series in Luke's Gospel. We've been here quite a while now, quite a number of weeks. We're still in chapter 11, and we start today at, at verse 33. Now, in my Bible, verses 33 to 36... There's an added heading. It was never there in the beginning, but it says, the light in you. And Jesus is talking about how what we look at, what enters our consciousness through our eyes, can affect us. But we'll leave this section until later. In fact, right to the end. And we'll begin this morning in verse 37 through to verse 3 of chapter 12. So it's quite a long passage. Um, I'll not read it all the way through in one go. We'll just pick it up a few verses at a time. So some background then. Crowds were following Jesus as he moved through the countryside. Many were genuine followers and probably will have considered themselves his disciples, but others were out to test him and provoke him uh, as those who accused him of driving out demons by the prince of demons that we heard about a few weeks ago. Today we see how Jesus confronts the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the lawyers. The Pharisees and the lawyers, or teachers of the law, um, were the religious elite. They saw themselves as custodians of the law. They were the scholars trained in the teaching and interpretation of the law. And I'm sure that many were sincere in their desire to see the law preserved and uncorrupted. But they also wanted to give the appearance of the ones who had adhered to the law more than anyone else. And sometimes they made a show of it. And according to Jesus, they had failed to recognize the purpose and aim of the law, which was to create an inner holiness rather than an empty outward observance. They believed that the way they would please God and make it to heaven was by meticulously following a long list of religious rules and regulations to the point that they became thoroughly legalistic and hypocritical. Throughout this passage, Jesus is not answering questions as he had been on other occasions, but taking the initiative and being deliberately provocative and even offensive. So that one of the lawyers says, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us. By this time in Israel's history, the Pharisees and teachers of the law had added 613 additional laws called the Mishnah which was intended to explain and interpret the original laws, but in practice, it only served to confuse and burden the people. Whilst most average Jews in Jesus' day didn't even attempt to follow all of these additions to the Mosaic law, uh, the Pharisees did and prided themselves uh, on following not just the letter of the Mosaic law, but also the letter of the Mishnah they would have assumed that Jesus, the rabbi, uh, would have been just as zealous for these laws as they were. And their interactions with him uh, were often to test him for orthodoxy as they saw it. 
we will see over a number of issues, issues, Jesus was not concerned with the outward appearance, but by the inward spirit of the law. And he castigated these elders of Israel, mainly because they were no help to the people. They should have expounded the law in such a way that it helped and inspired the people. Instead, they made it a wearisome burden. And to make matters worse, they didn't lift a finger to help them. And Jesus was out to expose their hypocrisy and show them that being godly should be a joy and not a burden. Jesus may have been addressing this issue when he said in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, and this is the first scripture coming up on the screen, he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Were they heavy laden with the burdens that the scribes and Pharisees were laying on them? And he says, And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So back to chapter 11 and verses 37 to 41. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now, you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but the inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give alms, give us alms, those things that are within, and behold, everything will be clean for you. Now, we're not told why Jesus was invited for this meal. Perhaps the Pharisee was genuinely interested in Jesus' teaching, but he was astonished that Jesus did not wash before eating. How many times have we told our children, wash your hands before you come to the table? But this was, had nothing to do with hygiene. Uh, it was a rule prescribed in minute detail in the Mishnah that I mentioned just now. And it was about ceremonial purity. Water poured over the hands in a particular way to remove the defilement of the sinful world. Not for the first time did Jesus talk about the inward versus the outward. And here he uses a cup and a dish to represent the person. He tells him that he is a fool to think if he can, he can keep all the, the rules and ignore the corruption within. Then he gives uh, the example of almsgiving, that is, giving to the poor. Now, it's likely that the Pharisees made a show of this practice, making sure that they were seen and admired for their apparent generosity. Jesus strongly condemns their motives and tells them to give from the heart with a genuine spirit of generosity, and that no amount of pouring of water can make up for a wrong attitude. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In these, in these days, many people give to the church by standing order. I'm sure lots of you do, and it's very convenient and helpful for the church to, in order to budget. But the problem is it can be a bit divorced 
from our worship because our giving is part of our, our worship. And perhaps it's a good thing uh, to review what we give from time to time and make sure that it's not just an obligation of membership but a love gift from the heart to further the work of the kingdom and support the church which Jesus loves. Many will testify that when we give our money away, be it to the church or to the poor, if it comes from the heart, it is a joyful, liberating thing. Next we come to the section where Jesus begins his criticisms with the words, Woe to you. <laughs> Sounds heavy, doesn't it? Woe to you. But my commentary said that woe is not an expression of rebuke or vindictiveness, but of regret. It's a sign of regret. So verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Jesus grieves over their tithing practices. Tithing, that is, giving a tenth of your income and produce to God, which, of course, was commanded in the law. But it was meant to be a joyful offering of love. But this calculation of one-tenth of all garden herbs made a mockery of it and went beyond what was required by the law. Jesus does not say they were actually wrong for doing this, but when people concentrate on the trivial, they are, over, uh, uh, are apt to overlook the important, uh, which here is love for God, which of course is of utmost importance. It seems to be a human trait that if for any reason our love for God grows cold, we compensate by concentrating on the externals of our faith, busying ourselves with attending meetings, regular Bible reading, serving on committees and teams, keeping the church running. These are all good and necessary, but not if they mask our lack of devotion to God. The next verses, 43 and 44. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are liked like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. The best seats in the synagogue were those facing the congregation so that those who sat in them could be sure to be noticed and admired by the people. But underneath, Jesus says they were corrupt. The problem with unmarked graves was that for Jews to come in contact with a dead body or a grave um, rendered them ceremonially unclean. In other words, they became contaminated. His inference is that although fine on the outside, the Pharisees were corrupt on the inside and that people who followed their teaching and ways would become totally unclean without being aware of it. They would be corrupted by them. It's hard to draw parallels with our culture um, uh, and um, I've yet to identify the best seat uh, in Vibe. Anybody think they're sitting in it? <laughs> but I guess it's, it's any situation where we, where we crave recognition. In the early church, as recorded in the New Testament, you may have noticed that none of those gifted to serve the church as leaders 
had titles but were known by their job description. For example, apostle meant one who was sent. It wasn't a badge or a title. And when being spoken about by others, they were just Peter, Paul, Timothy, Titus, and so on. Because we're all members of the body of Christ, uniquely gifted by the Holy Spirit, where every member and every function is important, we should avoid anything that elevates one over another and creates a barrier, particularly between leaders and people. I'm really glad that we're part of a, a church tradition that does not bestow titles on people. However, when we first joined Beacon, there was a lady who insisted on calling me Pastor John. I said, no, I'm just John, but she carried on calling me <laughs> Pastor John because I think she liked doing that. But anyway, but um, in 1 Peter 5, verses 5 to 6, we read this. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. We don't have to exalt ourselves. We leave that to God. Next, verses 45 and 46. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you, you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So the lawyers were getting the message as well. Yes, Jesus was speaking to them as well, saying, you load people down with rules and regulations, but do not lift a finger to help them. The people could never achieve the standards being imposed on them. But in absolute contrast, the glory of the gospel is that God receives us, makes us his children on the basis of our faith in Jesus and what he accomplished on our behalf. And then, by his grace, he helps us to change and become like Jesus. We are fully accepted and loved while this process of transformation goes on. Now, we cannot be condemned for not keeping the law because Jesus kept it on our behalf. Such a contrast to the legalism promoted by the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Next verses, 47 to 51. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them. And you build tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. So the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of you. Jesus is, of course, further exposing hypocrisy. Throughout Israel's history, uh, the prophets were resisted and sometimes killed. Zechariah mentioned here, um, being recorded in 2 Chronicles 24-21, if you want to look it up, where he was killed. 
Jesus castigates the lawyers because they were honouring these heroes of faith by building splendid tombs for them, uh, but they were doing no more than complete the work of those who killed them. Because the people of the day fully shared the attitudes that brought about the death of the prophets and God would hold them accountable. And uh, we get a wonderful example of this as we listen to how Stephen addresses those about to stone him after false witnesses brought accusations of blasphemy against him, clearly identifying with those who killed the prophets. Acts 7, uh, 51-53. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, and you, as your fathers did, so, you, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. So another woe. Verse 52, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You have not entered in yourselves, and you have hindered those who were entering. The very people who should have opened up the scriptures uh, and revealed the treasures they contained made them a closed book. Uh, They were so preoccupied with the mysteries that they had manufactured, which only they could understand, that neither they or the people could get the essential meaning of God's word and benefit from it. And Jesus castigates them for it, which fuels their opposition to him, as we read in the next two verses, 53 and 54. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So they were out to get him. Now we move into chapter 12. Um, I'm sorry we are moving quite fast because there's quite a lot of verses this morning. Um, Chapter 12 and the first three verses. In the meantime, uh, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were trampling on one another. He began to say to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed from the housetops. I think the meaning's quite clear here. False teaching can start small, but like yeast in the dough can spread to many. Over the centuries, the Church of Jesus has faced many challenges and sadly succumbed to false teaching on occasions. Today, I believe a major challenge to the church is about a different understanding of human sexuality from the traditional biblical one, which the church has held for thousands of years. Tragically, individual churches and some denominations have surrendered to pressures and are going the way of the world on the basis that they now have a more enlightened understanding of the scriptures. And it seems to be spreading. Uh, 
So unless we hold fast the word of God as handed down to us, this leaven, this yeast, will continue to spread. Now I want to return to the earlier verses I set aside. Verse 33 uh, to 36, which may at first seem like a, a very different context, but I think there is a link. We've just been considering the external versus the internal life, of our life with God, this time we're considering how the external can affect the internal. So Jesus says in verse 33, No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. I think um, my commentary doesn't say much about this. these verses. Um, I don't know why, but uh, there's not much said about it. But... Um, my conclusion is that what Jesus was saying was that what we see, what enters our consciousness um, through our eyes, either accidentally or deliberately, affects what we are as a human being. I think it's generally recognised that what we see is likely to stay imprinted on our memories longer uh, than what we hear. I can think of um, many things in my distant past, some good, some not so good, that are imprinted on my memory. I can recall the scene as if it were yesterday. Most memories like this are not harmful, but some, such as perhaps images of death and destruction, can scar us for life, as many ex-servicemen will testify. I believe Jesus is teaching that in some things we have a choice because he says to be careful. We should avoid images that will deeply affect us and scar our memories and damage our consciences. And he calls these harmful images darkness. In this generation, um, there is a darkness that is readily available that we would have previously not even imagined. And it's in the realm of sexual images. When I was young, I can remember that boys at school would furtively pass round a dog-eared copy of Health and Efficiency, uh, which was a nudist publication, all right, with the, with the pri people's private parts airbrushed out. Now, I won't ask you if anybody remembers Health and Efficiency, but all right. Anything else will be found on the top um, shelf of the, of the news agents. Right. Today, if you have a smartphone or any other device that, that can connect to the internet, and most people have, you have access to the destructive world of pornography. That is constantly pushing the boundaries of what can be viewed and acted out. It portrays a horrific distortion and a perversion of the wonderful created gift or creational gift of sex that is to be enjoyed exclusively in marriage. One source that I read says this, Now, 
the most hardcore images uh, imaginable are only clicks away for anyone with access to the internet. No matter the consumer's age or background, porn is more available, affordable, accessible and anonymous than ever before. In other words, a lot of people are watching a lot more porn. This is a matter of deep concern for anyone um, drawn into this world. But my main concern is that any child with a smart smartphone, computer or tablet can be confronted with this darkness, can have images imprinted on their minds that can damage them for life. They may grow up with a totally wrong understanding of sex, which may even jeopardise their chances of healthy sex in marriage. Internet providers are under pressure to remove such images, but there's a limit to what they can do. I'm grateful that such access was not available to myself and subsequently uh, to my children uh, when we were growing up. But parents of children and teenagers today will have their work cut out to keep their young ones safe. And I expect any parents um, represented here are already wise to this and have put safeguards in place to shield and protect, protect your children. But I wonder if it might be a good idea, and you may have already thought of this, to get together with other parents and pray and share best practice. And for the rest of us, these parents deserve our utmost support and our prayers. And to all of us, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 29, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, I don't believe Jesus was um, literally saying that we should uh, tear our eye out. But I think what he's saying is you need to be utterly ruthless in dealing with the offence. Utterly ruthless. The pornography trade, and it is a trade because it's done for money, uh, is so insidious, so pervasive, uh, that you have to be, we have to be on our guard and be ruthless in avoiding it or cutting off lines of access. In the extreme, it may mean denying ourselves access to the internet. But as I draw to a close, I want us to take heart, right? Because we, we have a saviour who is in heaven um, and who is on our side. And it's Jesus, the one who warns us, is not like the Pharisees and the lawyers who wouldn't lift a finger to help those struggling to live godly lives, but is one who understands our weaknesses and temptations and is ready to help. Let the writer to the Hebrews have the last word. This is Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray.
Father God, how wonderful that for us who are in Jesus, who have taken him as our saviour, your throne is no longer a throne of judgment, but it's a, a throne of grace. Lord, thank you that your grace is sufficient for every need, Lord, for every sin. And Lord, we thank you that even though life can be a struggle and we do face temptations that are hard to resist, Lord, thank you that we can call on you. We can cry out to you and know that you understand us and you love us, you care for us. And Lord, that you will help us as we face these different temptations and struggles every day. Lord, the world is changing fast, but Lord, you're not caught unawares. Lord, you're able to help your children. So Lord, we come to you and we lean on you now in Jesus' name. Amen.